leaving Downright buddy, buddy, buddy Wish I missed the past Buddy, buddy, but there's still Buddy cast Now don't be naughty Go meet everybody Here on Buddy Cast It's another Monday fun day here on BuddyCast. How are all my buddies doing today? I'm here with my new buddy. He's an author. He's a producer. His name is Aaron Ozzy. How you doing today, buddy? Doing great. How about yourself, Nick? Doing great. Thank you for joining us on the show today. It's yeah, an honor you. to have you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Yes, 100%. Now, let's talk about your book. For audience members who maybe aren't familiar with it or so, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, I I started off very young. So at this point in time, I have uh, 11 published titles beneath my name. Ooh. But the, the one book that uh, the whole world knows me for now is Regulus, as you've imagined. Um, and mm-hmm. The underlying uh, synopsis for that story, if you will, it's a, a very meaningful and deep children's book. It's not something like you would ordinarily find on the bookshelf. Uh, it's not the simple, uh, the cow jumped over the moon or the sheep jumped mm-hmm. over the fence kind of thing. Uh, this is a little bit more intellectual, uh, has more thought. Uh, it was carefully planned out. Um, and, uh, we'll kind of get into more of that later as to how I came up with the idea and where that kind of developed from that point. But, mm-hmm. uh, just for people who don't really know what the story about is about, it takes place of all places inside, uh, inside of a wall in a house, uh, some mm-hmm. random house. And so there's this, uh, rat overlord, uh, named Regulus, uh, who prizes all the cheese in his kingdom as his most valuable assets. And he doesn't like to share. He's very mean, uh, disrespectful, uh, careless, and he rules over all these mice. But there's uh, three in particular that uh, stick around him uh, are his servants in a way, if you want to call it like that. Um, and they do everything for him, but yet he's still ungrateful for the help that they give him. And, you know, they're so thin and so hungry and he's so fat and plump. And obviously there's the, the unfair balance in life in this story. And so eventually it gets to the point where these three mice, and I won't give away too much for people who haven't read it or even seen the movie for that matter, but they get together and they plot to betray Regulus to teach him a lesson. And so they actually steal all of the cheese that he has in his possession. And he's forced on this path of self-discovery and really just trying to uncover his faults and understand where did I go wrong? Why did my life end up the way that it has? You know, why did these mice steal what was rightfully mine or what you would think is rightfully his? And so there's all these thoughts going on and there's a lot of big takeaways for, you know, not just uh, our youth, but for adults as well, you know, uh, being humble, uh, forgiveness, sharing, um, you know, all these important lessons that you wouldn't normally retain from an average children's book. So, uh, but that's what really makes it unique uh, to answer your question. Yeah, that was beautiful. So what about the inspiration? Like what inspired you to write this book? What inspired you to come up sure. with that? 
Yeah. So it, it, you know, slightly before I get into that, even I really started off people, you know, there's a lot of people who know, but you know, a lot of people who don't at this point in time, because the children's books have become such the main focus of my career, um, that I originally started off as a poet writing different anthologies, uh, before that really tested my hand at screenplays and novels. And I was still really trying to figure out my craft and poetry was really something I went after because, uh, you know, my perspective at the time, and it still kind of is to a point is, you know, why am I going to enter a genre that's so polluted and there's so much competition when I can hit a genre like poetry, something that I'm good at, something that hasn't been popular in the last 50, 60 years, you know, like, and I ask people all the time, I'm like, what great poets of the 21st century do you know of? And they're like, I can't think of any. I said, exactly. I said, that's where the opportunity is, you know? And so I was climbing this mountain and getting really far up there, but I started to realize that I needed to branch off into other directions and really uh, diversify my, my voice. And, you know, for so many years, uh, you know, my parents, friends, family, you know, colleagues, just, you know, anyone who I've really had business dealings with as being an author, uh, they, they've always said to me, there's something about your work that could really be appealed for children. And, uh, you know, because one of the earliest forms of writing that I really tested out were just paper books that I was taking eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper out of my printer when I was a kid and writing three, four words on them and stapling them together and handing them out to strangers and, you know, friends or other neighborhood kids on the sidewalk just to kind of get exposure because having my name in print, you know, was this huge deal because we always used to go to Barnes and Noble and Target and my mom would take me to the book section and I would just be fixed on, you know, how could all these people create all these alternative universes for people to enjoy? Like it just blew my mind. I was like, you know, I mean, I just couldn't even understand it at the time. And so, you know, I eventually uh, wrote one poem one day in high school because a lot of my works were actually developed in high school, which we'll talk about that. It's kind of unique. You know, eventually I wrote this one poem uh, in my senior year that I really took time to look at. And I was like, huh, I'm like, there's something about this that really feels like a children's book. And, you know, that was not Regulus. This was the children's book before that, uh, which was My Darling Child Shiloh. And it's about a southern, uh, a son and a mother uh, enjoying the day together in nature. And it was something I dedicated specifically to my mom because oh, she's man. always been uh, one of my biggest supporters, you know, even though she doesn't understand 99% of the things that I work on. So, but that's fine. She's She still knows that I'm inspiring people and, you know, changing uh, a lot of lives, you know, in different parts of the world. So, uh, you know, that book was really my first shift into the children's book direction. And that took off like a storm covered by the Huffington Post, became a bestseller in a week and a half. It was just like making its rounds, getting all this crazy attention. And I, and I started doing book signings for the first time. And I was like, all right, now I'm like, this is really great, but I need to follow this up with something even better. And so that is when Regulus really came through. And so people are like, so how did the idea for Regulus really come across? And I said, well, think about it for a second. I'm like, ideas come from anywhere at any point in time. And I always tell people it's kind of strange. Two of the best places where I, because they're like, which environments do you like the best to have your ideas come through in? And I said, well, to be honest, I have the best ideas in the bathroom or when I'm driving. And I don't know why that is. And it's always been that way. And it's kind of weird, but you know what? That's what works. 
and I'll be taking a shower one morning and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to step out and write on this notepad because I got all these ideas. Seriously. I mean, it happens all the time, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of other people, a lot of your listeners would, you know, uh, relate to that. And so, uh, I'm driving one day, I forget where I was driving to. I think it was a meeting with uh, my publisher, my agent and, uh, you know, I'm heavy traffic and all of a sudden these ideas start popping in my head and I'm like, cheese and right and rats and mice and inside a wall and you know the number three and i'm like what what what's going on here i'm like it was just all these connections being made and eventually i then i started off and i tell people this all the time the best stories are the ones that hit you like a lightning storm. Like you just don't know where it came from and it just slapped you right upside the face, you know? And that's kind of what happened. And so I started to sound out a name in like actually mouth it out. I was like, Reginald maybe. And this is really how it went. This is the true story. And so I was like, I'm like, Reginald. I'm like, yeah, that sounds unique. And I'm like, it's what I'm going for. But I'm like, it sounds too aggressive rolling off the tongue. And I'm like, I don't I, I feel like it would uh, uh, dampen the image of the story. So I was like, how about regulus, you know, something a little bit easier to say and to remember. And sure enough, that was the right decision. So I started thinking about this story and just focusing on the core aspects of the story for so long, you know, and you know, another indicator that it's a great story, it's something that is, you know, one once in a lifetime is that you can't stop thinking about it, you know, and so I'm writing all these notes down different notepads, just constantly thinking about it, waking up in the middle of the night, you know, getting, you know, hot sweats, like just freaking out because I'm like, I had to do something with it, right. And so at the time when I wrote this, I was actually still uh, doing like part time classes at the College of DuPage in Glen Outland, uh, Illinois. And uh, I was, I sat there in the library one day and I took about maybe three or four hours and I wrote the manuscript for Regulus. And after I typed that last word, I never edited it. Never. And that's how I've always been about my writing. I never go back and change something because I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to writing. And so I'm just going to piece, you know, rip it up. But when it's the natural flow, that's how you know that it's the right words being written. And so right when that was done, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, this is it. But I didn't know what it was going to be at the time. I just thought it was going to be another children's book. I thought it was going to be another story. I didn't know it would turn into this international children's phenomenon that everyone knows now, you know, mm. and more or less happened in three years, <laughs> you know, so it's just been this crazy ride, this roller coaster. And you know, uh, it's it just funny to me that, and even my children's book before that, I wrote that in one sitting as well. So both those were written in one sitting and I just took that and it manifested into this, you know, huge thing that, you know, everyone, not just children, but adults can resonate with, you know? So, but it's, it's just kind of unusual how, uh, you know, things come about like that and the origin stories because they're just so odd, but you know, that's how you really know that it's a good story. So <laughs> yeah. I like the detail, how you have the inspiration just at the most random places. Like, do you keep like a notepad in the bathroom in case like, you know, inspiration strikes or. Oh, absolutely. All the time. You know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm always taking down notes. I would say my note app on my phone is probably the most used app out of anything, social media, email over anything else, because, you know, my mind works so fast 
that it's hard for me to remember everything that I come up with. And so when I have an idea, I need to write it down or else I'm going to forget about it. And just considering that I'm, I try to be so perfect about things and, you know, I've always, you know, had OCD that's, uh, you know, uh, something clinically diagnosed and, you know, so it's always mm -hmm. been something that's been a problem for me. So that's another reason why I don't revisit my work the way that I do, you know, like I kind of set it there and be done. So, but I'm in, I'm able to in real time, come up with different scenarios in my mind and also edit and do all these other things instantaneously to ensure that the work that I'm creating is what I want, you know, and I describe people, I describe it to people like this. It's like a gift. Like you can't, you can learn how to write. Like we all learn how to write, but to really be a writer, that's a gift given from God. I mean, that's like yeah. a godsend right there. And you just know, it. it's just like how a singer, when they have a beautiful voice, they just know that they were meant to sing. I just knew from an early age, you know, before I could really, you know, uh, complicate my ideas or share with people how I was feeling, like I understood what I wanted to do, you know, and having that clear vision and never losing that vision throughout the course of your life, that is what brings you to success. It really does. 100%. Now tell us about the, um, about how long the publishing uh, process took. So originally when I had written, uh, when I had written my first book, uh, it took me three years to write my first book. I started, it was between ages 12 and 15. Uh, it was the, over the course of three years. I, this was my first poetry book. You have to understand. So, uh, that one was called celestial infernal poems of another realm. It was 109 pages, 52 poems. It was published in hardback because I really wanted it to be in hardback. It was the big thing. And I was like, I don't want a paperback. I'm like, I want something that's hurt sturdy, you know? Mm -hmm. something that you can knock on and you really know that uh, there's true value underneath. And uh, so I really didn't know how to go through the publishing route. And so I started submitting my manuscripts to different publishers in New York, uh, California, other university presses. And, you know, that's what I had read online or, you know, to look at Poets and Writers magazine or just other sources, you know, uh, and obviously the internet has blossomed into this huge thing now. I mean, I'm talking like early 2000s here when things were really started to get rolling in different areas. And so it was hard for me to sit there and be patient because I've never been a patient person. I'm very impatient because my mind's moving at a thousand miles an hour in a million different directions, you know? And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting for all these letters to come back from these publishers and just it's rejection after rejection after rejection. And I'm like, why are they rejecting me? I'm like, why? I'm like, I'm feeling bad about my work now. I'm like, I feel like I don't want to do this. I don't. And that's where a lot of these authors get stuck, you know, is in that phase because they don't know how to actually get their work out there. And so I said, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. And I've always been a big fan of the alternative, Nick. There's always another way to do something. And I'm never going to settle for, yes, that's the only way. And certain cases, yeah, there might be, you know, an only way at one point in time. But if you wait a little bit longer, there may be another way, you know, because things mm -hmm. are always changing. Life is always progressing. So there's always something new. And so you know, I'm, I'm waiting and I'm like, all right, so I think the route that I should go to is uh, self-publishing. And I was like, let me go online and start seeing if there's a way that I can publish a book myself. And sure enough, that's when I came across Lulu, which is the largest self-publishing company in the world to this day. And at the time, they were really just getting started with building out their online platform and giving authors the ability to upload your manuscript as like a PDF and design your cover and set your own price. I still remember there was this 
uh, one story. It was kind of funny. One of my early uh, classes in college, I already had many books published at this point, and it was one of my English professors. And he came up to me one day after class. He's like, "Yeah, he's like, I know you're this author. He's like, I hear enough about you and on campus. You know, it's my You always hear that saying. You know, my reputation precedes me. It really does. You know, right. and so uh, especially in that environment. So he had come up to me. He's like, "Yeah, this traditional publisher. I wrote this book on how to effectively write a story, and I want to make it available to college students, but." The thing is, is that I got offered this huge advance by this traditional publisher, but they want to charge $120 a copy for it. And I said, and he said, I don't agree with that because I believe that this work should be available to kids, you know, or college students for next to nothing because this is valuable information that they need in order to, you know, progress academically. And I said, well, why don't you go through my publisher? Why don't you go the Lulu route? And so, uh, I never thought, and this guy was extremely intelligent. I'm sure he's still out there doing his thing. And, you know, one day he came out to me, he's like, you know what? I took your advice and I told the traditional publisher to get lost and I went this way instead. And I said, wow, I'm like, just that in itself, you know, was just a average conversation that I would have with anyone looking to publish something. And he took that advice and set his own standards and did his own thing. And so the reason why self-publishing has always been the route of my choice and believe me, there's been plenty of traditional publishers that have approached me, especially now, and said, we want your work, you know, we want to bring you on. And I'm like, no, because you're going to manipulate and control the whole situation. I said, I want the freedom as the creator to do whatever I want, setting the price, the distribution, the marketing of it, all of that, you know? And it's not just because I'm trying to control every aspect of it. It's honestly because, you know, I'm not going to let a group of executives in some far out room make the decisions for me. That's not what true creativity is. That's not what being a talent or a, a star celebrity or a public figure is. You need to build your own path, not follow another one that someone else has built for you. So, but it, you know, just that process though, going the self-publishing route, I was able to have that first book published within 30 minutes. And, and at the time that was just, unbelievable there was no approval necessary just went out there and just knowing that there was some kind of sales page out there where my book was available for sale my first book ever that was like a dream come true and still like one of the best days of my life was you know my mom came to pick me up from high school it was, uh, I was it was early high school i published my first book when i was in sophomore in high school uh, 15 years old a very big deal um, still to this day at my high school and the entire 70 years that it's been in existence, I'm the only student to have actually published or written and published a book while still a student there. But not only did I do it once, I did it eight times. So I, I would really like to see someone beat that, but or it's going to be a while until that something like that happens. But um, I encourage someone too because you know our future generations are just getting brighter and brighter. So I hope that happens. But um, you know, at least I know I'll still be the first. You know, mm -hmm. and you know, there's a lot of firsts in everything that I was doing, even though that was never my intention. But, you know, really having this ability to control my own path as an author and, you know, to understand not just the writing aspect of it, but the editing, the distribution, the marketing, that's a lot of knowledge that authors don't have that I have. And I'm able to share with other authors who are lacking in those areas. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you would recommend this company, Lulu, you would recommend them for anyone well, looking to publish a book? So I'll, I'll say one thing about that. I'm not represented by one publisher. I'm represented by three different publishers. Ooh. And people, people are like, okay, how, do, how does that work? And I said, well, when you get into the self-publishing world, the rules change. Things get a little bit different. 
And so for anyone who's looking to publish a print book, I would definitely recommend to go through Lulu. That's originally what I would tell people, uh, you know, a couple of years back. But now Lulu has the ability to publish print books and eBooks simultaneously. So I would consider them to be, you know, uh, an all inclusive suite for both print and eBook. But at the time they did not have eBooks. So I went with Lulu for my print. I was with Lulu for several years. You know, I was probably up to my fourth or fifth book at the time. And then it was funny because my dad, he's always been creative and, uh, him and I actually don't speak anymore due to personal reasons, but you know, him and I, uh, when we did speak really, uh, he, uh, was very supportive of my work at the time and uh, had always written in college himself, but never pursued it as like a profession or like a hobby. And it was funny because you always see this thing like, oh, the son takes after his father or the daughter takes after the mother. And it was funny because my dad took after me and then he started to publish his own poetry books. And, you know, the way he did it is he's like, screw print. I'm going straight to ebook. And he's like, have you ever heard of Smashwords? And I said, no. And he's like, you need to get on Smashwords. So Smashwords is apparently one of the larger ebook publishers out there. It's a little bit more complex in terms of the process to get your books out using their platform, but there's a lot of other tools that you can use. And significantly over the past few years, the process has gotten more comfortable. Um, but I use them for my ebooks. And then for my audiobooks, I actually use something called ACX. And people think, oh man, like how how much money does it you know uh, take to create an audiobook? Like that's a huge deal. No, actually, it can be created without spending a dime, and I'll tell you how. So ACX, it's, it stands for Audiobook Creation Exchange. It's a company actually owned by Amazon, just like how Audible is owned by Amazon. CreateSpace is another print publisher owned by Amazon. Amazon owns everything. I mean, they're taking over the world, as you know. <laughs> you know, uh, they got Prime and they got everything, you know, mm -hmm. and so... Uh, you know, but I, I was still very interested to come across the site and already at this point I had maybe about eight or nine books published right when I got up to the audiobook point and I was like, you know, I need to make my work available in so many mediums for people because not everyone likes to sit down and read a book. Not everyone has a tablet to read an ebook. Not everyone, you know, likes listening to an audiobook. But if I can play into all three markets, that's where the money's at. And so audiobooks have never really been a big seller for me or for a lot of the authors that I know, but still just to have them and to have them as products that you can market and generate sales here and there. I mean, it's more or less one of those like, uh, uh, personal goals, if you want to put it like that, so, you know, for any author, like, oh, I would love for someone else to record their voice and read my book. I mean, that's a huge deal, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you go on the site, you create a profile, you upload your book, you create like a, a little listing and narrators will audition and read like a little line or two or a page out of the book. And, you know, you'll listen to a 30 second clip and decide if that's the narrator or not that you want. And literally in the first, uh, audition that I got. It was from a guy named uh, John Grunwald who lived up in Michigan uh, here in the US. And uh, it was, his voice was unbelievable. And so him and I worked together for about nine months. It was like shooting a movie, which I actually did shoot a movie later on in my life, obviously, as you know. Uh, but it, at the time, it was a lot of work. And just even the uh, narrating the first book took two months. And But when I finally had the opportunity to listen to the finished product, just hearing the words being read back to me, 
it didn't even sound like something that I wrote. It sounded like something that some famous writer wrote, you know, back then, or, you know, it was some big production. So it really took me back. And uh, so in total, I've worked with two different narrators. The first one did uh, books one through eight. The other one did book nine. Um, and then the two children's books, I never consider to be narrated because what is a children's book experience? It's the parent reading the book to the child, you know? And so I wouldn't want to charge $20 for five minutes worth of audio. That's ridiculous and unfair of me to do because writing has never been about making money. It's always been about inspiring our youth and trying to give people who are looking forward to the future something to actually look forward to and to think differently, you know, because you can't make progress you can't succeed in your way if you don't do things a little bit differently you don't follow the norm you got to break from that path so yes i love that i love how you're not in it for the money you're not in this for the business you're in it yeah. to inspire so you mentioned it earlier your movie is now a book tell us about that yeah so that's uh that was a bit of, movie, sorry yeah that, that was a bit of a surprise and i just got to say for any author, Nick, to have their book made into a movie is like a dream of a lifetime. Yeah. And not only did I achieve this dream of a lifetime, but I achieved it when I was 24 years old. And that just blew my mind even more. And it's so uncommon. Like, I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you how many other 24 year olds are responsible for having, you know, produced and directed uh, you know, a movie that was actually based off of a best-selling children's book that they wrote. Like it's just unheard of. And so a lot of what I've done, there is no blueprint, there is no map to guide me. You know, it's just like, okay, here's the next step. And then a week from now, it's all blank. So whatever I decide, that's how it's gonna go. And so really Regulus had gotten to this very big point of you know, uh, being read by celebrities already, uh, a lot of different social media collaborations. There was really a culture, a brand being developed around it. Um, you know, just all these different things were happening. And uh, I came across this company called Tail Flick, um, and it's relatively new, uh, owned by a former Hollywood producer named Yuri Singer. And, uh, you know, still really getting into the space, but you it basically gives authors the opportunity to pay like a hundred dollar fee to list their book into their database for a year, and then they will option that based on the categories or metadata that you set, uh, you know, or information about the book to they'll market that to production studios to be made into movies or TV shows or plays or whatever the case is, right? Um, but you know, I got on there. I was I was on there for a while. I was really hoping that would work. I was promoting my presence on there, and I didn't really get anything from it. I know some authors have, and that's great. So I don't not I don't not recommend their service. I think they have something to offer there, but it just wasn't working for me. But one day I get this call from my publisher slash literary agent, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, so something great happened today. There was a, a production company out in California." Um, named Bizarro Studio, um, very small, uh, unique, uh, niche uh, production studio um, that focuses on animation specifically. 
that wants to acquire the movie rights to Regulus. And I said, wow, I'm like, I couldn't even believe it. I was just in complete shock. And I said, yeah, let's start the conversation. And, you know, sure enough, it was just a matter of time until the deal was done. And, uh, you know, we started really talking about options and how it was going to be structured and, you know, how it was going to look, because obviously it's not going to look exactly like the book. It's going to be a new iteration. You know, it's something in the studio's, you know, imagination. And so they sat me down and they pitched some kind of generic Peppa Pig or Adventure Time. And I was like, that's not what my work is about at all. And I'm like, I think you're just trying to uh, you know, excuse my language, half-ass this, you know, and just get it done. And I was like, that's not how I want to do this. And so I pitched my version of it and they liked my version so much that they actually hired me as the producer and director at 24 years old to go ahead and run this project. And I had no experience being a producer, director, editor, art director, set director, anything like that. You know, any of your so-called IMDB credits, if you want to go like that, you know, I knew nothing about any of that, you know, and they're like, don't worry, we'll help you. You know, we're going to get you through this. So it was a production triangle, the way that this worked. I was here in Chicago being the director and producer, the production studio and, you know, other executives were out in California. And then for the animation, they they contracted that out to an animation team that they work with down in Colombia. And so I, during this whole production phase, I actually went down there to Colombia to oversee the final stages of the movie and editing and just picture with, you know, for a second, if you can, Nick, just walking into a warehouse and, it, you know, not run down, but just like a, a very big industrial building. And there's all these cameras positioned over all these tables and people just running around like, you know, ants in an ant farm trying to like, capture every single second of this movie because I had pitched it as a movie that wanted, that needed to be done in stop motion. So we explored clay, we explored puppetry. And I was like, that's been done already. I'm like, that's been done. What hasn't been done? I said, construction paper, let's use construction paper, a medium that no one has ever used, you know, or barely uses. And so we did the whole thing in construction paper and it just blew me away by how professional and fantastic it looked once it was done. And, but I got to say the amount of pressure put on my shoulders to really direct this and bring the project to completion was not, is not something that I would ever wish on anyone else. Like, I don't understand how a Spielberg or a Tarantino do it. Like it just blows my mind. Like they are just born to do that. That's exactly why I'm not a director full time, you know, but, uh, that's why I'm on the writing side. So, um, but I'm not the writer that's going to sit behind a brick wall. Like most writers do and you know not interact mm -hmm. with their fans or you know like to be in public you know i'm the one who's throwing myself out there and be like hey look at me you know but because i believe in the fact that people should know more than just what you've written they should know the man or woman behind that too you know and that's what's important it really is so um but uh that that whole process was very rewarding and you know uh you know to kind of put a bow on that you know i'll say after the movie was really completed, we were planning this huge premiere. It was going to happen at the Hollywood Palm Cinema over in Naperville, Illinois. It's a one. It's like a, a one-off movie theater. Um, it was created by like some big investor out here in Illinois. Um, and every single room is themed differently. Like I was planning to have it in the Egyptian room, and the whole room was. Uh, styled after uh, Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant. And it was just so cool. And I was like, this is perfect. Like everything was lining up perfectly for the premiere. So the premiere was supposed to happen in, happen in March. And so 
what happened around March, that's when COVID-19 started and everything got shut down. And so they started limiting the amount of people that could get together. Then face Mac started, and then they started canceling all these concerts and public events. And I'm like, this is shot the hell. I'm like, we can't do this anymore. I'm like, this is over. You know, I'm like, the premiere is not going to happen. And that was something that I've always wanted to do was to host my own premiere and to come to that. And, you know, a lot of celebrities were in the process of making arrangements to come, family, friends, other colleagues, my publisher. I mean, it was going to be a huge event. You know, media was going to be there. Um, so, and we just went through this whole thing. And I said, you know what? I'm like, I am not. And then I started hearing, um, uh, Quiet Place 2 got per postponed and then, you know, all these other films started to get postponed and I'm like, I am not going to be kicked down by this virus and stop what I'm doing. I'm going to go ahead full speed. So what did I, so what I did after that, I worked with the studio, talked to my agent, the publisher. So we all collectively made a decision to go the direct to streaming route because at the time, you know, uh, what happened, you know, I mean, we're seeing uh, Bird Box come straight to Netflix or um, what's that? Uh, Scorsese film that came out recently. I did not see it. I'm sorry. Um, the, three, the three hour long one. Oh man. Uh, it was about Jimmy Hoffa, but uh, I, uh, and so you just see this happening more and more where they're going straight to streaming. And I said, okay, let's make an exclusive deal with Amazon. And so I went the Amazon route and had a conversation with Amazon and they're like, yeah, we would love to have it on Amazon prime video. And I was like, that's great. So we made the deal with Amazon. And so it was a lot of back and forth. I was really surprised by how much nitty grittiness there was in terms of actually getting the movie on the platform in the different versions, suitable for all different devices. I mean, it was like a lot of work, you know, and I thought it was going to be more on my team or the people helping me, but no, it was really, you know, on me to kind of coordinate with them and just, you know, connect the dots. And so it just so happened about two weeks before it premiered digitally. Uh, I was down in Florida. I still remember that down in Florida, sitting by a pool, sunny side, and I get this, um, uh, I get this message, you know, on my Twitter, it was like a push notification. And it said to me, uh, Oh, rise of Skywalker just came out exclusively as an at home premiere or released it early on voodoo. And I said, I called it. I knew that was going to happen. I knew that all these movies that were still in theaters were just going to go straight to streaming and they're going to make a fortune. And then trolls world world tour did it. And all these other movies started to do it. And so I right in the first two weeks of when the pandemic, like the first two weeks of March, when COVID-19 got really bad, like every day you were hearing something was going, going down, mm -hmm. it came out on Amazon prime. So what do you think all these children are stuck at home and what are they doing? They're entertaining themselves with the regular movie. Yep. And so after the movie came out, then I started to reach out to all my celebrity friends who had read the book. And I said, would you mind watching the movie? Would you mind sharing the movie? And these are all celebrities with families. And I'm not just talking about actors. I'm talking about musicians, comedians, political figures, influencers, um, athletes, just a variety of different stars. And within probably about a few weeks, there was like about 300 different celebrities that I personally knew and connected with that actually watched the movie. And so just within the first few months of it being released, it was viewed several million times between Amazon and also other streaming services that I had put it on. And so it really just took off. And, you know, I said, there's been no other stop motion animated film really released in this given year. I was like, 
and still to this day, I mean, I'd have to really look at the charts again, but you know, leading to the close of 2020, regular the Regulus movie probably was one of the most viewed stop motion films of last year. And so, and I, I, I know that's a big statement to make, but at least that's what the data shows. And it just really blew me away. And I was like, this is something that just sprouted still again, going back to that same idea three years ago, like all of this happened in just a short amount of time and look at where we're at now, mm -hmm. you know? And so, but I still remember the day that the Regulus movie came out on Prime and I was sitting home, uh, it was about 1130 at night and I was skipping through Amazon and all of a sudden I see that little tile come up for the movie with the art and I'm like, there it is, like I did it. And then just being able to sit there and actually look at my fire TV and look and say, that's mine. That in itself was the joy of a lifetime. It really was. So, and it still is to this day. So it's still unbelievable what I'm going through. So, you know, your story kind of reminds me of Walt Disney. There's that Walt Disney thing. It all started with a mouse, you know, it all started with a rat. It all started. It's funny you say that because there's been, um, you'd be surprised when I'm encountered in public or in other events and the names that people come up with me, every, every star has got like nicknames for themselves. Right. You know? And so I'm like, all right, it's only a matter of time till I get mine. And so, uh, at first it was something very simple, like, oh, you're the rat guy. Mm -hmm. you're, you're the rat guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Okay. Then people started comparing my work and my image to uh, a shell Silverstein, which was a big deal for me because he's a legend, you know? And uh, then they were comparing Regulus to what uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howell did at the time. And it really started to change things around for a lot of people and made all these political differences and whatnot. And, uh, you know, then, you know, it, it's funny because someone actually did at one point call me like, what are you going to be like the next Walt Disney or something? And so like all these kind of funny nicknames have really appeared over the past several years as the book and the movie and everything else, including myself has become more famous and, you know, just known around the world. And, you know, you'd be surprised that a lot of my fans, you know, they're not just here in the US, but they're spread all over India, Asia, um, in the UK, Australia. And so all the time I get to talk to people and it's amazing hearing from these different readers, these different viewers from all corners of the globe, just share how Regulus and just my persistence being an entrepreneur and an author has really given them the inspiration they need to break out of that frail shell and put themselves on the line where it counts and make you know the moves that they need to make in order to succeed in the way they want to succeed. So, yes, one hundred percent. Now, I got a question for you. There's usually a difference between movies and books. You know, like when you read the book and you kind of develop this own image in your head or something like that, the reader, and then they go and see the movie and it's like, oh, wait a minute, what happened to this part? Or what happened to that part? Was there any of those differences from <laughs> the book and movie? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because there isn't. And so I'll explain why. And a lot of people don't know this because if I were to market it like this, I would probably lose money, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway. And I tell people who specifically ask about it. So to the world right now, hear this, okay? So in the movie, as you watch it, it's 30 minutes and 20 seconds. That's the runtime. Um, you'll see that before each scene is acted out, if you want to call it like that, uh, there's words that appear explaining what you're about to see. Those words are actually the exact words from the book. So the book is in the movie. So it's a two in one. So people don't know that. And so they're like, why would you do that? And I said, you got to think about it though. 
What is the experience of reading a children's book? It's the parent reading it to the child. How is that any different from watching the movie? And I was like, the parent can read the words of the page to the child and the child can watch the scene and understand it and what's going on. And so it goes back and forth like that. So the whole book is in the movie and it really carries it through. That's why, and then, so a couple other things about the movie, how I did things differently. Uh, I took the Bohemian Rhapsody approach. I say it like this to a lot of people for the intro credits. They're like, why are the intro credits five minutes and 50 seconds? And I said, well, I'm like, just think about it, right? So many movies just give it, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds to just jump right into it, right? And you know what that teaches children? How to be impatient. They're expecting to see the main content right away and they just cannot wait. They're like, start it, start it, start it. No, calm down, have patience, just relax. And I tell parents that all the time and they're like, oh yeah, good luck teaching my child how to be patient. I was like, well, they're human beings. They can learn. I'm like, they're developing. I was like, they have to learn early on. I'm like, and so I made the credits long enough to where they actually sit and they wait. And I've seen many children do it. In fact, as they're watching the beginning, they're like, when is it going to start? So they're anticipating something. Then right after the opening credits end, the screen goes black and people are like, did it shut off or something? No. What it actually does is it clears the visual senses is if you're seeing nothing anymore and just disconnects your minds from all those credits. And then the music of this first scene starts to slowly creep in. And then the movie starts, it goes back to back to back to back. And so then there is no audio throughout, like there's music throughout the entire movie, but there are no voiceovers. The reason why is because people, these children rely too heavily on what the actors or actresses are saying instead of actually using their eyes to interpret what's going on. So I'm like, let me remove the voices and have them, you put their eyes to work. And so that allowed them to understand the story a lot better, but also in that parent-child dynamic to rely on the parent you know, to explain that part of it. And then for them to enjoy the scene, you know, not saying the children can't read the the text or the pages with the movie. They certainly can. I've seen it, you know, and, but it, it just allows for that other experience to be possible. But then the only time that, you know, so think about a movie for a second, Nick, when is the time that you really give up on a movie and you're like, okay, like I'm done watching it. The end credits, right? What is what is what is what is Marvel and other production studios now doing? They're making the end and opening credits something that is watchable. So mm -hmm. I took the same approach. And so the end credits is actually, in my opinion, out of the whole 30 minutes, one of the most entertaining parts of the movie. And mm -hmm. that's not said in a bad way. I mean, everything is good throughout it, but that's like, I'm like, this is I'm like, yeah, but think about it. Imagine you're watching a fireworks show. You have all these fireworks go up on the sky, and then they just stop, and you're like, "That's it." No, you need a grand finale. Yeah, so, right. So then the whole end credits is just the you know Regulus and the mice playing around, throwing cheese at each other, like all these different things. And what I did was, is I worked with a an aspiring musician who lives here in the U.S. Um, he's up and coming, really becoming you know known, and he's a folk singer. So he actually wrote a folk song for the end credits. So if you watch the end credits, you'll hear this song, and it plays so perfectly and majestically with what you're seeing on the screen, and it just ends it on such a sweet note. Seriously, I mean, it, and I still remember to this day the first child that ever saw the movie. It was not in like a focus group or behind a two-way mirror or anything like that, like how most companies do or what focus groups are. 
I'm, I got a exclusive, I'm the director, you know, I got an exclusive copy and I, I had one of my friends come over, bring their children. I was like, can you have your children sit here and watch this? And they're like, we'd be honored to. And so it, I remember it was his daughter. He sit, she's sitting there watching it. As soon as the movie was over, turns around and runs up to her dad and says, when is the next one coming out? Immediately, immediately. And I was like, this is going to be a smash hit. So then, you know, what happened after that, you know, was that I had all the celebrity attention and, you know, the rest is history, as they say, you know, so and it really just came together. It was it was very nice. And, you know, all of this has just moved at a rocket's pace since 2017 leading up till now. And I'm like, huh, I need a break. I'm like, there's so much going on. But you know what? It, it's too exciting not to stop. So or yes. <laughs> too exciting to stop. So <laughs> speaking of which, like you said, too exciting not to stop. What are your plans? Do you have any plans for this upcoming future? Like, do you have anything on the stove right now? Do you have anything like in the works? So um, yes and no. Um, so <laughs> yes to the fact that people have been pestering me for a long time and not in a bad way, but in a good way saying we want to follow up to the regular story. And I've explained to people, well, there can't really be a sequel to it because at the end of the story, Regulus becomes good, you know? And so at first I was playing around with the idea of, you know, could there be like a Regulus and the the city of cheese or Regulus and this and that really make it into a series But I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm like that. I feel like everyone does that and it's just gonna get watered down It's like oh that Regulus series, you know, but no, you don't you don't say that about uh, The hungry caterpillar by Eric Carl Eric mm -hmm. Carl That's that one book that you know has been considered a classic for 50 plus years, you know And that's you know, and he's written he's written many books, but every author has that one masterpiece that really associates yes. with their name you know, and so I would have rather spent the time in my youth when I have all this energy and, and I'm able to take all these risks to make that masterpiece of mine and then progress forward with new projects because that is setting the standard for what's going to come next. So I eventually came up with the idea for, okay, a sequel can't happen, but a prequel can. So I was like, how did Regulus actually become Regulus? And so that is the book that is on the back burner now currently in development however things kind of held up because recently and i'm sure you saw in the news other people did um i received uh an eight-figure acquisition offer from a private investment group looking to acquire the whole regulus empire and i put it like that because we're not just talking about the book here we're talking about the movie the merchandise future projects endorsements public appearances you know social media posts the story goes on and on and on and so they want the whole shebang. And so that's currently being negotiated right now as well. So who knows what's going to happen with that, but just to see how uh, high this, you know, uh, story has gone, how, you know, how much it's grown over the years and where it's at now, it just, it's still surreal for me. I mean, like I'm having a hard time even just telling you about it because that's how exciting and unusual and unique it is so um but there is definitely a future where i am intimately involved with regulus but you know honestly from what i've seen recently you know in the past like several months and you know the year even you know ever since really regulus attained this celebrity status people are looking at me as this public figure this influencer this person of knowledge and credibility, someone that they can aspire to be. I mean, I've had many children say, I want to grow up just like you and just all these other things. And it, it's really heartfelt to me to hear that because it means that my work is changing people and it's doing something good. 
And I don't have to be the richest author on earth. I don't have to be, you know, in the spotlight forever. If I could know that just one person out there in the world at some point in their life was affected in some way, shape or form by what I did or said or wrote, mission's done. Good. I'm good. But you know what? It keeps happening every single day all over the world. And I will continue doing that until I can anymore, you know, to inspire as many people as I can. So, yes. you know, but that that's, you know, kind of what I have to say about that. So. Yes. 100%. And remember those people when you make, you know, you've already made it, but remember those people as you keep going up, you know? Right. And, you know, one of the things that I do frequently is, and I'm sure you're aware of this is I'm on all these different shout out networks like Cameo, Starsona, or now called My Fan Park, or, you know, other like Real Talk Live or Slud VM. There's so many competitors out there, Jemmy, and, you know, each one is offering their own things, you know, like some offer like a merchandise store, or just shout outs or direct messages or live phone calls or Zoom chats. And, the, especially during the pandemic, these are great ways for me to connect with my fans and really to, you know, stay in touch with the world and, you know, see these reactions, you know, from the movie, because remember the movie came out during the pandemic. So I didn't get to see a room of like thousands of children watch this movie, you know, so I'm hearing from people all over the world through quarantine, you know, as to how they're experiencing and interacting with uh, you know, this brand, this image, this infamous Rat King character, right? And so one of the, uh, so one thing that I always request now is that there's people who will book me for these shout outs and I'll request reaction videos. So you have the ability to upload a reaction videos, like saying, oh, I love this. Or as they actually see it, they're like, oh my God, you know, like, it's like, and even just watching that, I'm like, that person's getting that excited about my voice. Like, it's weird, you know? And so, uh, there was uh, a school, an elementary school over in Long Island, New York. And obviously New York is one of the states in the U S that got hit the hardest by COVID, you know, so way different than Chicago right now, you know, and more serious. And so the principal booked me, they wanted me, she, uh, this principal wanted me to give like some inspirational talk, really just sharing, uh, you know, details about how I've been getting through the COVID struggle and just to inspire these students during this time and, you know, give them hope because what they're going through right now is uh, abnormal, very unnatural. And, you know, they need to, uh, you know, focus on something creative, something different, something bright that's going to lead them away from all this. And so I recorded this very nice video and it just so happens that they showed that video to every single classroom in the elementary school. It's one of the largest elementary schools on Long Island. And they actually started teaching different lessons from the book and movie in curriculum in the classrooms during the pandemic. And so that, that was pretty wild. And I'm like, I never thought one day that, you know, there'd be uh, an entire elementary school, you know, valuing my work and really taking things from it to expand their knowledge. And so I got this reaction video back. It was like 20 seconds long, but it, it was historic. And even this interview right now, Nick, is historic because it's taking place during the pandemic. Nothing like this is, I mean, something like this has not been seen in our lifetime. It's, it's unbelievable. Yes. You know, even, even some of the other actors and celebrities that you've spoken with, like them being on your show is like a historic moment in time that no one will ever forget. And so, you know, in a lot of things that I've done during this time, you know, like creating a line of regulus mass and all this other stuff, it just really ties together. But this reaction video, it was sad, but at the same time, it was 
inspiring and uh, you know just really encouraging to see this. It was a classroom full of kids wearing masks, and they had these giant glass shields, like massive domes around their desks. And all you hear in the background, they're all watching the screen. All you hear in the background is my voice. And they're just screaming and laughing. And they're so excited to be hearing from me. They're like, wow, you know, and it's just like this huge reaction. And I was like, that is truly something special. And I was like, even under the hardest circumstances, financially, you know, socially, whatever it is, you know, even with what we're going on, going through right now, even under those circumstances, children was, were still able to find joy, not just in a character that I created or my work in general, but in me being someone that they can look after and, you know, aspire to be someone that they, you know, something they want to aim for later in life, because everyone can do it. You just have to really put your mind to it. So. Yes. That was a beautiful story. I, lo I love how you get inspired from just a group of kids who, I mean, children are your audience. Yes, you're your target, but just seeing them through this pandemic is what gives you that inspiration, like gives you that, you know, you're not one of those people where, oh, you focus on the mass numbers or you focus on how the sales are doing today. No, you're the guy who focuses on the kids. Yeah, it's not about it's not about the sales, Nick. It's yeah. about, you know, making a difference. So yes. yes. Now, one question I want to ask you is, in your own words, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? Hmm. Well, I've, I've had a lot of experiences going through high school and college and other environments where, you know, people have been mean to me, have not really under, but it's not being mean to me or being cruel to me because they don't like what I'm doing or, uh, you know, think that I'm weird or strange. It's, they don't understand, you know, and it's the lack of understanding that, causes them to behave and act out irrationally. And, you know, going through high school, middle school, college, it was very tough for me. And I just could not wait to the moment when I was out of that. Like, mm -hmm. even though I was already achieving success at a young age, I still knew the value of education and wanted to get my degree. And I achieved highest honors and, you know, highest GPA finishing college. Like I was a very good student, you know, and was very on top of my stuff, you know, but the social pressure and all the people around me, they were just kind of living the day to day and not really seeing the end goal for themselves beyond high school, beyond college, like what they were going to do with their lives when I had that already figured out years and years before, you know, and nothing was ever going to falter that. So it's always been hard for me to say, yeah, that person's a friend that person's my best friend because of this lack of trust that, you know, anyone can turn around and bite you in the back. But you know what? after a long time of really feeling bitter about that, what I've realized is that we're all just people and we're all in the same boat and we're all having challenges. We're all facing different issues. And just because one person is nice and one person's mean doesn't mean that they both can't be nice, you know, and both can't get along. And so I've always told myself that if I try hard enough and make my, or be the person that I am, and not try to fabricate who I am and really just be direct as possible, I can make friendships with anybody, you know, and I value human connection and building my network more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, there's a quote that I heard that, you know, it's not at the end of the, at the end of your life, it's not about the things that you have. It's the stories that you have to tell. And that's very, very important for people to know because everyone in this world is so caught up on the materialistic things that they don't really consider, you know, that extra step. 
And, you know, what else is in life besides that? Like, don't you think, you know, that there's a part of me that wants to just stand up right now out of this interview and walk out and be like, I'm just going to go to some countryside and spend the rest of my life there? Of course, because you know what, there's, there's a, a, a special thing about being calm and serene and living life instead of working and doing this and doing that or doing things, you know, but, you know, it's, it's about, you know, being a good person and you know developing the right relationships so you can reach that point of nirvana or prosperity or whatever you want to call it so you know that's kind of what how i would define that nick mm -hmm. hey you're a buddy here on BuddyCast, so thank you i appreciate that it really means yeah. a lot <laughs> yes or i don't call them guests i call them buddies because you know it's about making that connection and uh if you you know the author c.s lewis yes um, you know c.s lewis says it best friendship is born when one friend says to another Hey, you too. I thought I was the only one, you know, and yep. um, really from someone else who has been bullied just for, cause I, you can tell I'm a little person, you know, I've been bullied because of my height. I've been bullied because some people just can't understand. Like I say it all the time. It started in school when kids just weren't understanding. Um, and it continues to this day. Like I could walk out on the street with you and we could just count the amount of times someone drives by and screams something at us or like there was one day I was walking into I was walking into church with my mother and I stepped aside to hold the door for her and someone drove by on a nearby road and screamed effing midget right in front of my mother like, that's horrible I'm yeah. sorry to hear that but I, but you know what it's made me who I am not in the not in the way of like oh I'm bitter or something you know it makes me compassionate it makes me feel like you know like, it makes me feel that I will never use my comedy to mock someone for something they can't control. Or I will never, like, you know, I'm not going to be the person who, no matter how famous I get, I'm not going to be the person who goes up in a press conference or something and makes fun of someone because, well, they look funny or something like that, you know. Sure. I completely understand. And I, I've seen a lot of other people in that situation where they're being pushed around for, you know, something physical or mental, or they're mm -hmm. just like, not like the typical person. And that's just so wrong. And, yeah. you know, I, I completely uh, empathize with that just because, you know, I went through something very similar, just being this, you know, intellectual outcast, if you want to call it, and just mm -hmm. being seen as this leper, you know, and cast from society, because I wanted to actually do something with my life, unlike most of the people that I went to school with. And, you know, so but that's, that's horrible to hear, Nick. But you know, I, I always say this, I, I am not a judgmental person. I, I hate judging people. And I, I think everyone has their own situations and their own set of challenges. And I appreciate them for trying to be the best person that they can be. So mm -hmm. I thank you for saying that because, you know, I can, I commend you for being the best person that you can be. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. No problem. Yes. And you know what? It's given me the opportunity to make friends through this show because it gives me the drive and inspiration. I want to be someone's buddy today. I don't want to be someone's enemy. I want to be someone's buddy. Sure. Buddy cast. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> So another question I always ask my buddies who come on the show is if you could have our audience donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a good question uh, because I'm a very charitable person. There's uh, a very big uh, philanthropic uh, element to what I do as an author. Um, like for instance, uh, my uh, 
all these shout out networks that I mentioned, those are all donated to various charities. But, you know, I've gone out of my way and have donated or worked with different charitable organizations. Like, you know, I'll, I'll answer your question in a second. So, but just kind of build up to that. Like I've done other things here in Chicago and over where my publisher is located uh, in North Carolina. Um, and there's a, um, different literacy groups, you know, cho children, teenagers who can't read or have trouble reading, really trying to donate to them. There's one uh, organization in Chicago called Young Chicago Authors, and they basically have a program. It's a city program where uh, they try to find, you know, creative individuals, creative teens who are you know, living in impoverished conditions, you know, and are on the verge of really getting stuck into that drug life or, you know, being involved with gangs or whatever the case is. And uh, they take them off the streets and they try to empower them to be in their facility and to write and to share uh, slam poetry and other things like that. And, you know, that was something that I really resonated with because it was taking just an average person and making them into something more, you know, and it wasn't just because that person wanted to become more or wanted to do things differently. It was because someone believed in them and took them and said, we are going to do things differently with your life now. So get ready, be prepared for that. And so, but out of everything in general, uh, you know, I, my favorite charity, I'm not going to say my favorite charity, but the charity of my choice, uh, has always been St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Um, so just because, you know, they do great work there, um, you know, they're giving children a second chance in life, you know, they're, uh, taking care of all those costs, uh, involved with treatment and, you know, that's their sole concern is their patients. And, you know, you have to remember that I'm not in the, I'll say it again, I'm not in this for money. I'm in it to entertain children and to give them a distraction. And when those children are facing those different health related issues and, you know, in some cases, and I hate to say it on the verge of dying, you know, they need something to uh, take their mind off of it. They need to focus on something brighter uh, in the time that they have left. And if my work or my words or my help, either financially or, you know, advice wise or whatever the case may be, if any of that can give them just a little bit more hope to go on, then that's all that I want, you know? And so I really believe in St. Jude's mission and I really encourage other people to support them as well. So Beautiful answer. Beautiful. Now it's time for what we call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. You ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. What is your advice for anyone out there like myself who wants to write a book one day, who wants to become an author, who wants to get their story out? So there's a, an easy answer and a hard answer. So mm -hmm. uh, are you ready for that, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> so the easy answer is to give me a call. <laughs> Seriously, not kidding. <laughs> I talked to, you'd be surprised. There are so many authors who call me, text me every single day, asking questions, really just trying to get the guidance they need. And I say to people like this all the time, I, when I started writing, I had no one holding my hand and guiding me through the process. There was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of failures, a lot of frustrations, you know, a lot of disappointments, a lot of this, a lot of that, and just the list goes on. And, you know, it was v this very rocky road that eventually over time, as I grew older, I was able to straighten out and understand better and really set little candles along that, uh, that, you know, 
cobble pathway, you know, to get to that point where you're comfortable. And if I choose to willingly not share that knowledge with anyone, that's a crime on my part. You know, that's, that's a shame. It really is, you know? And so if I can give someone any piece of advice, you know, and even just like some authors will be like, where do I start in terms of editing my book or how do I publish or distribute it? Or how do I do self-promotion or how can I collaborate with celebrities and how can I do this and that? And there's always an answer for it. And you know, I, whatever I tell people, I'm not just telling them because I think it works. I'm telling them because I've done it before and it has worked, you know? And so I always can, and there's that saying where, you know, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. I'm, I don't say that in an aggressive way, but I say that as in, you know, if I'm going to be the person that is able to give not just an answer, but the right answer, then just bring me right to that person and let me tell them myself. But that's the easy answer. The hard answer, the more complex answer is, here's what I've noticed in going to a lot of different schools, daycares, high schools, colleges, just other lectures that I've been scheduled for, even Zoom calls or interviews like this. I say it all the time. You know, there's two parts to this. I have really like three things to really share with you, Nick, because I think they're very important for your listeners to hear. You know, firstly, you know, the more difficult aspect of how I see uh, becoming an author, I'll address first, really is, you know, you have to have a clear vision in mind for what the story needs to be and have it written, you know, really spend time on it to a point where you appreciate what you've created. But the big point where, you know, I was getting at with going to all these different events, I hear from so many students, there will be students who come up to me afterwards like, yeah, I just wrote a novel or, oh, I'm starting to write a novel or, oh, I wrote poetry and or I wrote this children's book or, you know, they wrote this and wrote that. And I've submitted to, I've submitted my manuscript to traditional publishers. I'm just waiting to hear back. I'm like, don't wait. And then they'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm too scared to hear what people are going to say. Don't be scared. Just get it out there. See what they have to say. It's just all these, I can't, I can't, I can't. You know what all that is? It's your distorted voice telling you that you can't do something. And you hear, you hear this all the time. Your own, your worst enemy is yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you can, and if you can learn how to take this part of yourself and put it in the corner, nothing's ever going to stop you. It really won't. No matter if you're trying to become an author or a musician, an actor, whatever it is, if you can learn how to disconnect your mind from all that anxiety, you can push forward in a very positive way. So that's one thing I'll say. Second mm. thing I'll say is don't take things too seriously in life. Really do not. I just want to, I say this to people all the time and they're like, huh, I never really thought about that. It's kind of two-tiered. One, people will say, oh man, I'm 35, 40 years old. I don't have enough time to do anything anymore. Well, tell me, okay, you're 35. How many seconds are in a minute? How many minutes are in an hour? How many hours are in a day? How many days are in a week? How many weeks are in a month? How many week, How many months are in a year? And on and on and on. I'm like, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. And you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know how much of that time you're going to be able to use. But just think about it. That's a lot of time. You're telling me you don't have time to do something. Do it now. Just get on it. It's like, what are you waiting for? Right? Mm -hmm. but not only that, but don't take th things too seriously. Do you realize that while we're having this interview right now, that a meteor from deep space can come and hit this earth and crack it open and everything that we're doing or everything that we've ever done is counted for nothing mm -hmm. and we're just gone and we're scattered across the universe? That can happen right now. 
And so why am I going to torture myself in trying to be something that, you know, doesn't match who I am or trying to achieve something that, you know, realistically isn't, you know, possible with the resources or the time or the environment that I'm in and just really learn to carve out that little slice of success out of that bigger pizza or that bigger pie, you know, and be happy with what you have. You know, because you're never going to be the greatest author in the entire world, even though, you know, sometimes that's what I always want to be or that's the end goal. But speaking from someone who's became a bestseller, who has achieved world records, who have spoken to celebrities like Akon or Drake Bell or, you know, has, uh, yeah, seriously, I mean, or has had a movie made on their work or, uh, you know, has spoken to world leaders and all these different things. Enough is never enough. Even after all that, I'm like, what's next? What's next? What's mm -hmm. next? It's like I'm flipping channels. Don't flip the channels. Shut the darn TV off and appreciate what you've done. Because if you don't and you don't really appreciate the little steps or the experiences that you have, by the time you get to the end of your life, you're like, man, that was exhausting. And that's all you have. That's mm -hmm. all you have. But the last thing I will say to you, because I really think that this is important, I'll, I'll let you ask other questions you have them, mm -hmm. is... I've always tried to wonder what success can be defined as. Like, how do you define success? Like, let me ask you, Nick, how would, very simply, how do you define success? What do you think is a successful person or achieving success? I think success is based off the people that you impact, the people that come up to you. Like, I would rather, like you said, it's not about the fame, the fortune. It's not about the money. It's not about, you know, you could be making a billion dollars a day or something like that and still be one of the most the least successful person in my book. But if you're the person who's going out there and you get recognized, hey, I saw you on this, or you know, or you get a text from your from your friends like, hey, I saw your this today and I loved it. That is success in my book because you know you're playing an impact. You know you're making that deeper motion. Like you're playing that bigger role rather than just, oh, yeah. I just in my bank account, I'll, I'll show you how successful I am. Right. Right. And, you know, and you're exactly right. I really appreciate that definition. And, you know, it's been something that, you know, has been a lifelong pursuit to understand, if you want to call it like that, just something that I've wanted to make sense of, because it's been so muddy down, so watered down in our society that the only way that we can define success is by the amount of money that you have. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, really think about money. Where does money come from? Trees, it's printed, it's mm -hmm. currency, it's a promissory note to to trade something like the way we view money today. Yeah. Money was viewed like that hundreds of years ago, but it's not in any way viewed as seriously as it is within the past, like, uh, you know, century or two, you know, and it's turned into not something that is about exchange. It's turned into something that's quite evil and chaotic. And so I've always, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm successful. I feel like I'm impacting people, but I'm like, unless someone says to me, you're, you're successful, I'm not really going to feel it, you know? And trust me, there's men, been many people I've told this story to and they're like, you are successful, like calm down. I'm like, no, 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 I'm like, that's not the point. The point is, is I'm like, I've never really been able to understand it from a reasonable perspective until one time I did. So there's an actor who I've been really good friends with for many years, his name's Sean Kanan. He's from... Uh, the Karate Kid movies. He's going to be on Cobra Kai pretty soon here. So 
probably one of the hottest shows in the world right now. So him and I are very good friends. He lives out in California. Um, and besides being an actor, he's also producer, director, but a writer. And he wrote this book one time called Success Factor X. And he interviewed 50 of the most powerful people on the planet and said, tell me what success is in your own words. And so I said, okay, you wrote this book. I asked him, I said, you've done all this research for many years. You have to be able to tell me what success means. He's like, oh, I have an answer for you. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interested to hear. So here's what he said. He's like, here is a theoretical scenario. And I was like, oh, okay, it's one of these. So he's like, imagine a guy who was born into an impoverished family with very little resources and had probably poor parents, very crude environments, you know, just not the best upbringing. But that boy was always taught somehow, some way from friends or family or his parents or just from, you know, being exposed bare to the world to work as hard as possible and save up as much as he could in order to have a better life. And so he goes through his life for decade after decade, working hard, you know, 15, 20 hour days, just, you know, six, seven days a week, just constantly working at it, you know, and it saves up all this money, you know, to a point where he's able to marry the woman of his dreams, you know, not like a Hollywood blonde, but, you know, someone who he truly connects with, has a family. And then one day as his children grow older, he finds out that one of his kids needs a new heart. And if he doesn't get a new heart, he'll die. And the heart surgery, as we all know, it's probably one of the most expensive operations that you can get. And unfortunately, they didn't have the best insurance. So it had to, most of it had to be paid out of pocket. It just so happened after 30 or 40 years of this one guy working as hard as he could save up all this money, it just down to the dime had enough money in his savings account to cover the full out-of-pocket cost. And without a moment's thought, he put down that money, paid for the operation, and now his son is alive and is able to have a future. Wouldn't you consider that person to be successful? Absolutely. Hundred percent. Absolutely. And even though money is an aspect of this whole conversation, that is not the focus here. It's the thought that I was able to disregard money for what it is without a moment's thought and put it towards something that actually meant something, you know, and put it towards something that was good. And now this guy has a family will have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and for his family to go on and on and on. And he was just a necessary clog in this universal path for his family and his, you know, line, his, his generation to keep going. And that is the role that life gave him. And he accepted it and appreciated it for what it was because it made him into a better person and it affected the other people around him. And ever since I've heard that story, I've never forgotten it because that is really how I define success as well. So, but just to share that, because I'll, yeah. you see, I, you read online all the time. What does success mean? How do you define success? Here's 21 tips to how, how to define success. Here's this, here's that. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. You know, it's success. It's how you make it be seriously, just, you know, plain and simple. So, yes, I think that is the perfect note to end on my friend. Sure. So, let's stick around for a minute. We'll chat. We'll chat. I got some ideas. I want to run by you. Okay, but sure. Thank you so much for being a buddy here on BuddyCast. It was a pleasure to meet you. If Absolutely. You today, and I'm very inspired. I've got a book brewing in my mind right now. So 
Well, we'll, we'll have to talk about it, but you know, God bless to all your viewers and uh, yeah. uh, please everyone in the world stay safe and healthy and make sure to go watch the uh, Regulus movie on Prime. Your family will love it. And uh, yeah. I'm it's sure you guys, trust me, we're, we're all going to be past this very soon. We'll all reach a yeah. point of normalcy eventually at some point. So take yes. care, everyone. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. And I got one more favor to ask you today. Yeah, sure. Go be someone's buddy. I am going to be someone's buddy today. I will make friends with someone new today. <laughs> yeah. All righty. For all my buddies out there, this is my new buddy, Aaron. Thank you again for being on BuddyCast. And we will catch you next time right here on BuddyCast. Well, the days are going fast. Buddy, buddy, we've got to make them last. Buddy, buddy, before they've all gone past. Buddy, buddy, tune in. Buddy Cast. Don't be lonely, make it, buddy. Here on Buddy Cast.